If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. If you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, that is page number 688, page 688. And we are going to be in chapter 18, but I feel like I need to give kind of a how-did-we-get-here type moment. Uh, There's been a couple things that we've talked about as we're going through the book of Matthew, and since we've only been going through it for about three years, I figured I would catch up since not everybody was here three years ago. Uh, Matthew is a a collection. It's not in chronological order, but it is really an introduction, and then it is five different messages that Jesus preached, and the way that Matthew records it, he is explaining uh, what happened in between these speeches. And so he's using different parts about this. And so last week, we are in chapter 17. We see the transfiguration of Jesus where he brings uh, Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain. And during that process, he is transfigured, meaning that he literally takes on his actual figure of who he is when he's not dressed in the humanity of how the people at this time see him. There's a lot. You can listen to the podcast last week. And Moses and Elijah also show up. And Peter, and again, as I mentioned last week, I relate a lot with Peter, which is you open your mouth when nobody has asked you to, nor is it an appropriate time. Peter blurts out, this is good that we are here. Not necessarily wow, this is amazing, but he's including himself. Hey, it's good that we're here. And then he says, we'll build a tabernacle to Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And God shows up. And as always, when God shows up, human beings become very aware of their sinfulness and they drop to the ground. And God tells them, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And they're incredibly humbled at what they've just seen. And then they go back down to the mountain, and there's a couple things that happen after this, and then we come into chapter 18. So remember that. Now, chapter 18 is another, it is the fourth message of Jesus that Matthew records, and it looks a lot like the first. The first one is Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 3 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5 are called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And when we went through that, we said, this is really a a recording of Jesus saying, if you're going to represent me in my kingdom, this is how you are going to live. Now, another phrase we've used a lot is, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, meaning that as humans, all kingdoms that we've known in our lifetime, all kingdoms that have been recorded, are quite similar. It's this, might makes right. If we have the firepower, if we have the army, if we have the strategy, we'll win. And now we're in charge. Um, And a lot of times in our personal lives, that's what we see play out in business. That's what we see play out in our lives. If you're the strongest, if you're the one that represents themselves the best, uh, how many, maybe I'm the only one that's ever had a job where we looked at coworkers and we're like, how did they get promoted? None of you? Okay. And then we tell our friends why. Well, they dress nicer. That's how they got promoted. I deserve that. Uh, We come up with different reasons. And of course, none of you would do that. This is other people that you work with. And we come up with different reasons. And we see that in government. We see that in work. We see that. And that is how culture teaches us we're supposed to be. If you can be faster with your tongue than the other person, you're doing better. If you can point out their faults, you're obviously better. And what Jesus has been introducing all along is that his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Things are different. He's already said that John the Baptist, there's no man born of a woman greater than he. And then he says, yet I tell you that the least in the kingdom is greater. Well, that doesn't make sense. How can that be? And then tonight, and a lot of times when we come to Matthew 18, we we view it and... um, I've been a camp director of four different children's camps. Uh, I've worked with children and teenagers most of my life, and this is a a passage that we normally talk about when we're talking about children, and in a way, it is. 
Uh, as we said when uh, I got back from sabbatical, something that's been a, uh, something we realized we really need to change or do a better job of, of integrating at Hope Church is our discipleship aspect. How are we making disciples? Uh, how are we doing in, in helping people grow in their spiritual maturity? And uh, two weeks ago, um, several of the leadership from Hope Church and Fellowship of Oakbrook were able to go to a disciple-making lab, and it was fantastic. And in it, he, uh, the guy teaching is Jeff Vanderstelt, and in it he was talking about how do we actually take people, do we, do we look at human beings and how they mature, and then take people in our church and say, where are they spiritually based on a human being? So take an um, infant, for instance. If the baby is born and we come home from the hospital, and I'm looking around at some of the beautiful babies that we have in here, um, do we look at the baby and be like, okay, we're home. Figure it out. You know where the food is. Go get it. There's like a cupboard, and it's so easy to move a chair over. Like, how are you not getting this? Well, that's ridiculous. We would never do that. But yet, sometimes, spiritually, that's what we do. And I'm speaking from a person in church leadership. Sometimes we just have way too many false expectations of people and where they are in their spiritual walk. And so as we read through this, understand that Jesus is both talking about children, but the main point of what he's saying in Matthew chapter 18 is, if you were my disciple, this is how you behave now. Uh, hopefully you got a handout. If you did not get a handout like this, please raise your hand and we will get one to you. Trust me, it's important you have one. Uh, so raise your hand if you do not have one. Uh, one. I was about to compliment our guest services team. Two. So close. No, I'm just kidding. Great job, guest service team. Um, that's on them. Just kidding. But what we're going to be looking at is, this is a disciple of Jesus. And then this is my last overarching theme that we talked about back in May, so I do not expect anybody to remember. In Matthew, we constantly see groups. There's three different groups that Matthew addresses uh, or, or talks about. And the first group he talks about is the disciples. Now, we tend to think of the 12 disciples, and everybody knows who Judas Iscariot is, we think of 12 disciples, but a lot of times when he says disciples, it's people whose lives have been changed. They have decided to follow Jesus. And so sometimes there is 400 disciples. Uh, we see him sending out 77 disciples. So when we think of 12 disciples, those are the ones that are closest to Jesus that he would use as apostles, but there's also these other disciples. And, and we're going to say, talk about this again, but these are people who have demonstrated the word repentance. Now, repentance is a changing 180 degrees. You were doing this Something changed, and now you're doing the opposite. And sometimes we think, and another big part of my background is I've worked in, uh, with people with addictions for a long time. I worked in drug rehab centers on multiple occasions. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. How did he work at a children's camp? And also, I really like extremes. So go back and forth. Um, and I would see this pretty regularly, and that is somebody is in the rehabilitation center, an inpatient rehabilitation center, and they have stopped using whatever it is that they're addicted to. Not only that, but they're attending their classes and they're doing all the things they're supposed to do. And so we can say, wow, they're doing great. But you know that there has been no heart and mind change. They're doing it to appease another human being and to keep them happy so that they don't lose something they don't want to lose. And it varies, so I'm making it very broad. And I think a lot of times we do the same thing spiritually. We, we change our action and we, we put on a show and we want to make it look like everything's okay. But in reality, there's been no heart change. There's been no mind change. We haven't actually fully repented. We've just changed actions. And there is a very big difference. And so what we're going to see is as Jesus is addressing uh, these disciples, uh, that's who these are. These are people that have decided to follow Jesus. So that's 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 grouping number one. The second group that Matthew points out regularly is the crowd. These are the people who, as I've summed it up before, they're going to see a magic show. Hey, Jesus, grow another guy's arm back. Hey, Jesus, uh, make somebody see again who was blind. Hey, Jesus, make that lame person walk. Okay, great. Can you do it again? These are the people who say, hey, Jesus, can you do a sign for us? And Jesus, who's done nothing but signs for two and a half years, three years at this point, is saying, as he did last week, you perverse generation, you generation of no faith. I'm doing these things so that you see that I am who I say I am, and yet you continue to not believe in me alone. 
And so that's the crowd. They show up, they want to see a show, and they leave. Only to come back and watch the show again at another time. And then there's the third group, and that is the religious leaders. Now it's interesting, Jesus very rarely goes after the crowd. He did say, you perverse and adulterous generation, how often, how long do I have to live here? And you see all the acts that I'm doing and you still don't believe. But normally it is the crowd that Jesus is loving and demonstrating that there's a different way and he's demonstrating this upside down kingdom. The people that Jesus goes after the most and challenges the most is the third group. And that's the religious leaders. Those that told people that they know the most about God, but when the promised Messiah, Son of God, is standing in front of them, they didn't recognize him. They liked to point out everything that everybody else was doing wrong, but when Jesus showed up, they didn't listen to him. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't care because who they had set up in their mind should be the religious leader. Jesus wasn't living out those characteristics. And that's who Jesus went after and challenged and flipped over the temple and did all these different things. So keep that in the back of your mind. Chapter 18 is specifically to the disciples. So now we shall jump in. And I promise I will have you out of here within three hours. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We'll stop there. Remember, Peter, James, and John were just up on the mountaintop with Jesus. They see him and who he really is. His hair is turned to white. The glory of God is shining off of him. Now, also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three books were recorded while the disciples were still alive. So the names aren't used. So there's no names mentioned here. It says, and, and some of the disciples asked Jesus, when we get to the book of John, when John writes his, and it's different than the other three, uh, as we've said, John is written as like a, a memoir about my best friend that you should know as he's talking about Jesus. Almost all, if not all, the disciples except John are dead. And I love how John just rats everybody out by name. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for example, will say, and the soldiers came, and there was one of the disciples of Jesus who pulled out a sword, and he cut the high priest's servant's ear off, and Jesus healed it. John's like, it was Peter. He did it. Peter totally did it. I mean, he's dead now, but yeah, it was him. And he calls out like, and, and some say, and the disciples raced to the tomb. John's like, so Peter and I ran to the tomb, and I won. I beat him, and he's dead. He can't, he can't contradict me. So here again in Matthew, we see that it's, it, there, there isn't any name. So I'm just going to give you my thoughts on this. This is not biblical. This is just Rob. When it says at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I believe it was Peter, James, and John. They don't get it. They're demonstrating their spiritual maturity level. They just saw Jesus transfigure before them. They just saw Moses and Elijah. Peter is reprimanded by God of putting anybody else on the same level as Jesus, saying it's about Jesus and Jesus alone. Listen to him. And they're amazed. They come down off the mountain. They watch them heal a demon-possessed boy. He tells them that he's going to die and raise again. He then uh, makes coins appear in a fish's mouth to pay their temple tax. And they're like, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because I have a feeling it's me, right? Like we were just up there, and, uh, and more than likely, again, this is my opinion, it's probably Peter because he goes out and catches the fish with the coins, and he's like, so I just want to be very clear on this. I'm the best, right? Like I am unbelievably awesome, right, God? Right, Jesus? And then look how Jesus responds in verse 2. He, being Jesus, called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Point number one. Disciples of Jesus demonstrate humility and dependence. 
Disciples of Jesus demonstrate humility and dependence. A baby, an infant, demonstrates its dependence on its parents every moment of every day. And they continue to grow, and they continue to be dependent. I wouldn't say they're the most humble sometimes. Let's just say, for instance, I happen to be driving a kindergartner to school last year. And it's early in the morning, and the kindergartner, who will remain nameless, is looking out the window contemplatively which really some of the best things he says come right after that. And he goes, Dad, I'm in charge now. <laughs> and I say, uh, okay, like, why is that? He's like, well, you're not in charge anymore, and mom's not in charge, like, I'm in charge of the house. It's like, well, I appreciate your wanting to take on some responsibility. It's great, it shows a really hard work ethic, which I appreciate. Said, but uh, you know, there's still a lot of things for you to, and I'm, you know, using this as like a, this coachable, or the person that was telling me the story is using this as like a coachable, teachable lesson. I was like, but there's still a lot of things for you to learn, and mom and I get to teach those to you. As you no, dad, I actually know everything. Like, I'm all set. And I'm just dying laughing as I'm continuing to drive. It was me all along, turns out. But how often do we do that in our lives? Hey, God, I got it from here. Thank you. You've done enough, I'm in charge now. Although you're an almighty creator of everything God, I got this aspect of my life covered. Thank you for showing up. A real true disciple of Jesus, and this is what he's teaching the disciples, he brings this child in the midst of them. So one second they're like huddled up with Jesus, being like, hey, Jesus, real quick, who's the best? And he brings a child into their midst and says, unless you change and become like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Very strong words. A disciple of Jesus demonstrates humility and continues to demonstrate dependence on them. Now, as we grow up, we become more independent. We become, uh, we, we start to see the world around us recognizing those who demonstrate arrogance and confidence, and so we try to do the same thing, and, and we feel like that will get us a, a job promotion, or, or that will get us recognized by a teacher or a professor, and we start to build up these different things, and we start to become more and more independent, and we want to show our parents that we don't need them anymore, and we want to show our boss that I'm better than, and we do these, all of these things, but what Jesus is saying is the more, the, the upside-down kingdom, the more spiritually mature you are, you end up becoming more and more humble. The more spiritually mature you are, the more you are demonstrating a firm dependence on God. It's an upside-down kingdom. Uh, we have a saying that we try to repeat as often as possible, and it's, the gospel is always about humility and sacrifice, not comfort and privilege. Uh, we just preached on this a couple weeks ago through Philippians chapter 2, having the mind of Christ or the attitude of Christ, and it's a demonstration continually, and really how we live out this phrase is telling of how spiritually mature we really are. Pick it up in verse 6. Jesus continues, again, picture this, he has the disciples, he has a child standing in front of him. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Before I get to the next point, understand, Jesus is not recommending maiming yourself. Uh, he is using a teaching style of exaggeration to drive home a point. Nor is he saying that if you cause a little one to stumble, a millstone was larger than a human being, it was used to crush the wheat and the barley, and it had to be pulled by a donkey or an ox. 
So he's also not recommending, and he says the depths of the sea, meaning the deep ocean. So he's not recommending that you get a millstone, put it on a ship with a human being, tighter. He's demonstrating out of exaggeration the same thing about cutting off your hands, feet, or eyes. I want to make that very clear. Jesus is not saying to maim yourself. He is trying to prove a point. And his point is this. Disciples of Jesus encourage growth, not hinder it. Disciples of Jesus encourage growth, not hindering it. Jesus is giving a warning to those who hinder his followers or his disciples in their spiritual development. Now, we tend to think, and again, I I think of it in extremes, and I've already said I worked in drug rehab, so I used to think, like, this means don't give kids crack. And if I came up here tonight and said, hey, everybody, and I mean it, don't give children crack, you would all be like, deal, we did it. I don't even have crack. What we tend to forget is what really causes people to stumble. What really hinders spiritual growth in people? And a lot of times it's little things that look good. It's little things that look like the truth. It's little things that we can excuse away and we do and then it causes problems later down the road. So. Um, one of the things that I've mentioned this many times before that I've seen in churches is the ability, like, and I've said it's almost like the longer you're a believer and the longer you're in church, the better you become at making excuses. Like, we get good at it. I've been in church all 26 years of my life. I'm not actually 26. Um, And you get good at it, and you're trained by it. I would hate to say it, my parents trained me well. My older brothers trained me well. I then, in turn, trained my younger siblings well. Uh, What we do is, and the more education we get in the Bible, is we take verses and we use those as our excuse for why we aren't being involved in church. Now, when I say involved in church, I don't mean Saturday night. I mean involved in the church body throughout the course of a week. So when you hear me say church tonight, understand I'm talking about living as brothers and sisters of Christ in the world together. It has nothing to do with the service or community. It's all around. So when I say we come up with excuses to not be involved in church, it means that we come up with excuses to not be active in the body of Christ that we say we're an active part of. And we do it. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're good at it. And without realizing, you're taking people who are sitting next to you, who are sitting in community group with you, and you're teaching them how to do it too. And that's a massive stumbling block. And that can be the person who Jesus is saying deserves to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea because they're they're hindering spiritual growth instead of encouraging it. Uh, Think of as parents, your children are watching you as I watched mine. They know how you look at church, and they know how you look getting ready for church, and they know how you look driving to church, and they know how you talk during the week about the people you go to church with and how you act when you're in front of them. And as parents, you have a responsibility. Your actions are truly teaching your children how you feel and what you truly believe, no matter how you act when you're there. Your children know if you're doing it out of obligation, if you're taking part of being the body of Christ out of obligation, or if you really believe it in your heart, and you could be causing them to stumble. It's a reminder, your actions are communicating to your children your priorities. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, he continues, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go, to the, and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Number three, disciples of Jesus seek the wandering. Disciples of Jesus seek the wandering. Now, I know a lot of your personal stories in here, and I'm not talking about anyone specific. So afterwards, please don't be like, were you talking about me? I promise you I was not. Um, this passage oftentimes is used to talk about how much Jesus loves those that don't know him, and how he, like a shepherd, would go out and try to find those that have not entered into a relationship with him. 
in the context of the chapter, I believe that this is actually, this is a sheep who was part of the flock. They were there. He knew their name as the great shepherd that Jesus is. And then for some reason, as sheep do, they wandered off. As sheep do. And again, a lot of times, sheep are chasing something that looks good. It might be the sheep, and I'm not calling out anybody, please do not take this offense. I can talk about a lot of things up here, but if I talk about travel sports, <laughs> they look good, right? My kid's going to go to college, so we're putting them in travel soccer or travel baseball or travel whatever. And then the next thing you know, you haven't seen the person in three years. And they've wandered off again. There's a way to do all of those things. Travel sports, I'll be the last one to say travel sports are bad. I love sports. Love them. But it's when they're gone, and all of a sudden they're not doing anything, taking part in the family of God. Now, again, I know in here we have coaches, and, and they coach, and they are gone, and their job takes them away. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who literally wander off. They're not actively involved in the body of God. They're not discipling their team. They're not trying to introduce their team to Christ. They literally, you would not know that they belong to a church in any form or function. And I'm using travel sports because it's something we all know about. But there's all of these different things that show up in people's lives and pull them away from the body of Christ. What does Jesus say? He says, go get them. Go get them. It says Jesus is happier. They're, they're happier about finding that one sheep than the 99 that stayed. Is that our approach to when we know that people have wandered off from the flock? By the way, if you're here tonight, I'm not talking about you because you're here and you're active. Just trying to be very clear on this. So look around. We'll get more into this in the application part, but are there sheep that you haven't seen in a while that need a phone call, need a text message, need to know that they are loved and they are cared for, and that there is a family who is missing somebody sitting at the dining room table with them? I remember... Um, I think it was May 9th of 1988, and you're wondering, but Rob, you're only 26. How do you remember 1988? Um, my oldest brother, who me and him have always been very, very close. He's a little, about 11 years older than me. Okay, truth is, I'm actually 45. That's the truth. And uh, I think it was May 9th. I may be wrong on the date. 1988, he moved to West Palm Beach, Florida from Rochester, New York, and he took me to Friendly's took me out to breakfast before we moved. And our house was never the same. I'm in the middle of seven kids. There was plenty of other people there. But when somebody from the family is missing, it makes a difference. He was 21. He, he was moving out. Like it's, it's a good thing. But I still remember it as clear as day. We had a huge dining room table to fit all the kids that my parents had. I blame my parents for all seven kids, by the way. <laughs> um, but also my parents took in any one of our friends that was going through a rough time. We had so many people living with us at different times. Um, but it was never the same. And I think one of the ways that we miss showing love to other sheep is by not letting them know that they're loved and missed. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. That sounds fun. <laughs> Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Put a mark there because we're coming back to that. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Point number four. Disciples of Jesus seek reconciliation through confrontation. 
Disciples of Jesus seek reconciliation through confrontation. Please understand, the goal is reconciliation and restoration through love. It is not retribution. It is not punishing other people. Because ultimately, and again, this is hard, the loving thing to do in a relationship is to confront someone. As I mentioned, my background is working in drug rehab um, and halfway houses. I did not like to confront people. I still do not like to confront people. I am an extreme extrovert. Think golden retriever. Like, I just want you to like me. Please like me and give me a treat. Please, 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 please. Confrontation does not come naturally to me. I don't like it. I hated it. Working at the rehab center when I was young taught me that sometimes if you don't step in, it costs people their life. People that you love and people that you cared for, but I didn't want to offend them, and they died. I didn't want to hurt them because I was more concerned about my feelings than a human life. And guess what? I learned the importance of confrontation. But I've also seen it done wrong more often than not. I've seen people come in and say, oh yeah, Scott? Well, guess what, pal? Your shoes are dumb. I'm just speaking the truth in love. And I kid around, but I've seen that happen with church leadership, and I've done it as church leadership. There is no love there. And your shoes are wonderful, Scott. That's not loving. The picture of, of actually con confronting with love is in Galatians 6, where it says, bear one another's burdens. It's a picture of somebody hurt, let's say playing soccer on a field, and instead of running over being like, idiot, you hurt your leg. Get up, walk it off. And their leg is obviously going in a direction it's not meant to go in. The loving thing to do is to bear the burden with them and say, hey, you're in shock right now. Don't look at your leg. Put your arm around my shoulder, and we're going to get you off this field, because by the time we get to the sideline, you're going to notice your leg, and it's not going to go well. But we're going to get you help, and we'll get through this together. And as your leg mends, I'm going to provide meals for you. As your leg mends, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to help you get through this, and we're going to get through it together. That's the picture of confronting somebody in sin, is, hey, I noticed something is wrong here, but I'm here for you, and I'm going to help you through this, and we're going to get through this together. Because you're hurting, and you may be in shock, and you may be in denial, but I'm not going anywhere, and we'll get through this together. And if we need to call in other people to help, we will. What he's talking about, the next step is, I come up and say, Scott, your leg's broken. But we're going to get you off the field. And Scott's like, no, it's not. I'm like, oh, trust me. I've seen some broken legs in my day. That's broken. You're not going to be able to walk out. He's like, no, it's fine. And he gets up, and there's a horrible crunching noise, and he falls over again. So another teammate runs up, and he's like, hey, Scott. <laughs> Rob's right, your leg is broken. It's like, no, it's not, I'm all good. And tries to stand up again, it's not going well, the color's left his face, the leg is doing things and dangling in a way it should never do, and we're like, and he falls down again, and a third person shows up and is like, we're looking at each other like, we're gonna have to pick him up and carry him out. He doesn't understand how bad this is. And Scott's still going, I'm fine. And shock kicks in. And I don't know if you've ever been in this situation where you're trying to help somebody in shock. If you've ever been a lifeguard, what do they teach you? They're going to fight you if you're trying to save their life. And that's what can happen in confrontation. So he's saying bring other people in lovingly. Help point out a problem. But all of you are going to be there to help it get better. And then at some point, you have to go to your coach. Say, Coach, Scott shouldn't be playing soccer on the team anymore. His leg's broken. And everybody knows it. And that's what happens in confrontation. It's not that we're trying to kick people out of a church. And, and that's something that gets really misplaced. I'll go over in a second. It's that it needs to have attention brought to it so that it can heal. So that there can be reconciliation. So that there can be uh, uh, repentance of Scott being like, you know what? 
I know most of you didn't know this, but my leg's broken. Like, oh no, we all knew. But instead of saying, like, I knew it, we come around and be like, okay, well, we'll get through this together, Scott. We're going to help you out. Thanks for sitting up front tonight, by the way. <laughs> and the same thing is true in the church. If we continue to see something being done and we, we confront, and then we have to bring in another witness and says, hey, this is a problem, and they still don't listen. We bring in another, and then at some point we have to go to an authoritative figure to help bring attention to the problem. But the goal, please understand, the goal is reconciliation and restoration through love. Most confrontation, we wait so long that our, our um, fight or flight hormones kick in and we have to pump ourselves up so much to go and talk to somebody about it. And really, we should have talked to them about it three months ago when we first noticed it. So now it's super awkward. I remember the worst conversation, another job I've had in the past is I've worked at three different Bible colleges uh, and one secular college. And I worked in the Dean of Men at one Bible college. The worst conversation you can have with somebody and when I would sit with all of my dorm leadership at the beginning of the year, I would tell them this. You're thinking you're going to have some really awkward conversations. Nothing, and I really, I promise you, nothing is more awkward, especially in a guy's dorm. You don't know where I'm going with this. When you say, hey, you don't bathe regularly, and you smell. Some of you in the military are nodding. <laughs> Been there. Because that person says, when did this start? Because you're in the spring semester, and you're like, week one in August. So I tell them, you have to start early on, okay? You notice a guy hasn't showered by day two or three? Talk to him then, because if you wait till spring, it is super awkward. Same thing with sin. The stink isn't gonna go away by itself. And the sooner that we can talk to somebody when we notice, the sooner, a lot of times, in conversation, a lot of times it's just some kind of a mix-up. It's just something wasn't thought through clearly. But we've let it go for three or four months, and then when we finally get there, our emotions are running high. They're getting defensive because they can sense our emotions coming off of them hot, and it, then it just turns into something really ugly. And unfortunately, that's how most confrontation is done. So again, the goal is reconciliation, through love, not retribution. There's two side notes, there's two parts of this passage that get taken out of context quite a lot. Uh, the first one is in verse 17. Um, he says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And I'm ashamed to tell you that I've sat in church leadership meetings where somebody has been caught in sin, they've been confronted, they still won't repent, and we basically kick them out of the church and we tell everybody, don't have anything to do with them. They are a pagan or a tax collector. It never occurred to me until about a 12 years ago, how did Jesus treat tax collectors? He sat with them. He dined with them. He loved them. He healed them. He called them to be his disciples. What was one of the religious leaders thinking about him? Well, you dine with, with tax collectors and prostitutes. He didn't shun them. He didn't point out their sin and let them be. He loved them, and he cared for them. Who was the majority of the crowd that he was trying to reach? Pagans. He welcomed them into the crowd because he knew it was how they would learn about Jesus. When he's talking about a tax collector and a pagan, treat them, he's saying, you don't put them in church leadership. You don't have them uh, being this representative of a role model for other believers to follow if you know that they're caught in open sin and they've been confronted. But the goal is reconciliation. The goal is to introduce them to Jesus. The goal is to love them. And I know some of your stories, and I know some of you, and it, it pains me because at another time or place, I would have been the one hurting you when really I should have been the one being confronted on being so self-righteous and legalistic. But that's not something we confront very often in the church. In fact, oftentimes it's rewarded. The disciples of Jesus seek reconciliation through confrontation, but it's done through love. Verses 20, starting verse 20. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Again, Peter is the greatest. I love the guy. He thinks he's really demonstrating mercy by saying seven. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And some translations have it 70 times seven. 
But please understand, and I'm going to take a quick pause here, Jesus isn't giving a magic number of when you have to stop forgiving somebody. Again, it's this exaggeration of, no, you continue to forgive. I want to stop here, and it's very important because I don't know necessarily, but some of you may have had these verses used against you in what I believe is a very sinful way. I've seen uh, flat-out abusers use this next passage as a way to continue to abuse their victims, and I hate it because it's taken out of context. And I've seen people lord it over other people saying, well, you have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. And when you, when you say you forgive me, that means you wipe everything clean and you forget everything that's happened and all of that, and they do it again. So in Luke 17, verses 1 through 4, uh, this is Luke's recording of a very, uh, very similar Jesus saying the same thing. Uh, understand Jesus more than likely said all of these messages repeatedly. This was something that he was constantly teaching over and over again because they didn't have podcasts, so he had to repeat himself. So Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The key word there. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. That's the confrontation. And if they repent, remember we talked about earlier with repentance, forgive them. There's two parts to this. It's also gaining wisdom. It's also saying that when somebody says that, will you forgive me, you can forgive them. But part of it is also, I'm, I'm hoping that there is a change, not an action, but again, going back to repentance of mind and heart. If you're not going to, I can still forgive you. In other words, like I can still say, I understand that what you, you are taking ownership of what you've done against me, and I recognize that, and I forgive you, but also I've learned that there needs to be a change of heart and mind involved. Now, this whole topic of forgiveness, we are in the fall going to be doing a sermon series on it. Um, so just know I'm very, very minimally touching the surface here, but I want to be very clear because I've seen this passage used against people for too many times. One time is too many. So, picking up verse 23. Therefore, Jesus goes into another story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their masters everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Point number five, disciples of Jesus forgive. Disciples of Jesus forgive. And understand, this is an incredibly hard aspect to live out. You will spend the rest of your life living it out. You will spend the rest of your life forgiving somebody who maybe only harmed you one time, but it will be a daily struggle to continue. Why? The forgive and forget thing is not real. If it was, Paul wouldn't have told us not to keep a record of wrongs. But as human beings, we're phenomenal at keeping a record of wrongs. We are so good at remembering how somebody robbed us, and we can keep track of every single person we've ever met and how they've wronged us, if you're like me. Not everybody can remember things. And I'm envious of that sometimes, honestly. 
But we don't like to forgive. We like to hold on to things. We feel like it gives us power. And so please understand, this is, an, this is a continual thing. I would love to stand up here and be like, hey guys, disciples of Jesus, forgive. And you're like, oh my goodness. I'm going to go do that right now. And boom, we're all done. This is a continual process. The main point, what Jesus is saying, is he's, he's painting this picture of somebody who owes. Now this is 10,000. It's not $10,000. It's 10,000 bags of gold. So it is a giant fortune. Now to anybody, no matter how big their fortune is, somebody owing you 10,000 bags of gold is noticeable. And I think that's an aspect of the story that we, we tend to forget is God is all loving. God cares for us. But our sin, that debt, grieves the Holy Spirit, and it is noticeable to an all-knowing God. And there is hurt there. Now, God is so loving, and he so wants an, an intimate, loving relationship with his creation, that's each and every one of you. If one of you were the only person on earth, God would have done everything he did just for you. And I think it's understand, understand this is a personal, intimate, loving God. And he wanted that relationship with us, but our sin hindered it. That debt that we could never pay back, although we'd want to, and although there's, there's a good thought there that we could pay back 10,000 bags of gold, it can never happen. It's a debt too big. So God forgave us our debt. How? He sent his own son, his perfect son, to come to earth to pay a debt that we could never pay. He endured the punishment that was meant for us. He died. He took our sins on his shoulders. He died taking our sins to the grave. And he rose again, defeating death, but leaving our sins in the grave. So that when we're like that humble servant who drops to their knees and recognizing, I can't do it myself, that it's only because of Jesus that I can have this relationship renewed, that the debt is taken care of. And now, when I make Jesus the forgiver of this, my sins and leader of my life, I enter into that relationship with God, that debt is paid. And it was nothing that we earned, it was nothing that we could work for, it was all Jesus. And he did it. Going back to the very beginning, humility and dependence. Understanding who we are, understanding what we deserved because of our sin, but also understanding that Jesus took it all and we must be fully dependent on him. But then what do we do? Somebody bumped our car in the parking lot. Oh man, you owe me big. Somebody wrongs us in a minimal way. And then we take it upon ourselves to make sure everybody knows what they did. And there's no forgiveness. And they come back and they say, hey, I am really, really sorry. My kids were hungry. I was trying to get to McDonald's. I wasn't looking and I clipped your car. We're like, not good enough. You're paying for everything. In fact, when you bumped into my 2009 Honda Civic, I'm sorry, when you bumped into my 2023 Lexus, you made it look like a 2009 Honda Civic. So you owe me a Lexus. And that might not still be good enough for me. This sounds ridiculous, but when, sometimes when we're sinned against in even minimal ways, we tend to forget the humility that we needed to come to Jesus with. We tend to forget the debt that was paid to us. Remember, there is nothing that another human being can do to us that we did to Jesus on a daily basis. There's nothing that another human being can do to us that is greater than us deciding that we are too good for Jesus. So here's what I want you to do this week. In your community groups, um, in your conversations, there's a couple of questions here. Number one, what makes humility so hard to live out? By the way, we don't actually expect you to get through all three of these questions. If you can get through one or at least jump into one in your community group this week, you are doing fantastic. The question number one, what makes humility so hard to live out? How does Jesus' humility differ from what our culture teaches about humility? Right? Good luck getting through that in an hour and a half. Number two, this is something to do personally. We already hit on it. Who are the sheep or who are the people that were part of the flock who are gone that you haven't seen in a while? How can you reach out to those who may be wandering this week and let them know they are loved?
How can you reach out to them and, and let them know? You have no idea. Sometimes uh, I'll just text somebody I haven't seen in a while, and it turns out like they're taking care of their parents in another state, and I had no idea. And in my mind, they're wrong, when in reality, they actually need love and prayer and care. So who, what sheep are you going to reach out to this week that you haven't seen in a while? And then number three, what does it mean to forgive others as God has forgiven you? And then how have you done this personally? Or maybe you can talk to your community group about, hey, I'm having a hard time forgiving this person. Uh, I'm having a hard time because this person hurt me and I've never been able to forgive them. And again, that is a massive and a loaded question. Uh, Hope Church, I want you to understand that this isn't just something we do on Saturday nights. Like, this isn't something we, we don't put on a program for you, for you to hopefully be entertained by. We love you and we care for you. And that is every week, all week, every year. Um, if you have questions, if I've said something, again, when you start talking about confrontation and forgiveness and times people have been hurt by the church and all those things, that's just a conversation starter for a very long, ongoing conversation. And that's why we exist. We exist for those conversations. We exist so that you know that you are loved and that you're cared for and, and that we are a family. And just like my oldest brother, when that seat was empty, we want you to know that seat's noticeable and we love you and we want to know what we can do so that you know that you're part of this family. So afterwards tonight, please talk to me, talk to any of our leadership. Uh, we, we would love to have those conversations with you. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you love us so, so much that we just cannot, as human beings, understand. But Lord, I'm so glad that you do. Lord, I'm so glad that you demonstrated your love for us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this evening who has never made that decision to make you the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, that you would give them the courage tonight come and talk to one of us, to call out to you, whatever it is, that you'd be working in the hearts and lives of everyone here this evening. Lord, I pray for those that do know you. Lord, there's so much in this passage about being your disciple that oftentimes we tend to forget what it is to be a demonstration of you in a culture that's telling us to do the opposite. And we also forget to do things out of love. Lord, I pray that through your word and through your Holy Spirit that you would work in our hearts and our minds that as we continue to notice the things that we need to repent from, that as we notice the things that there needs to be a mind and a heart shift following back to you, that you would make those apparent to us, but also that you would do these in your strength knowing that we can't do it on our own. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.